turn with me in your Bibles, we are going to do Genesis 43. I made a joke, and some people took it a little too far last week, uh, that we might be reading Genesis 43, 44, and 45 this morning. We're not. It's okay. We're only doing Genesis 43. And I even, like, attempted to make it 15 verses and not all 32. So I'm trying. Or 34. we got to count. Um, but what I want us to hear from this morning's passage is that shalom, mercy, peace, peace particularly, comes through faith and by faith. Okay? Peace, shalom, comes by faith. Particular faith. We'll talk about that. But before we get there, I want to ask you this question. What does it take for you to experience peace in your lives? What does it take for you to feel at peace, to be at peace in your lives? Now, to get, not to get too deep into what peace means or what shalom means yet, you might be thinking like this, when my kids are fast asleep or when the house is all quiet and it's like 10.30 at night or 3.30 in the morning, depending on who you are. Maybe peace is when you're not at war or at, uh, at fighting odds with someone else, maybe even your spouse. Maybe peace for you is something that is never attainable. It always feels like chaos in your life. Peace is very difficult, by the way, to maintain throughout your life, specifically if it's not focused on the Lord and his works. So we're picking up today in a story about being, you know, peace being made, about shalom being restored, particularly to a family, the family of Jacob, Joseph, Reuben, Judah, these names that we've been talking about. We're talking about it, but this peace is not just for this family, you see. This peace is not being restored just for them alone. It's being restored so that you and I may need and know peace. We cannot know peace without first Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers being made at peace. Think about it. Think about it for two seconds. If Joseph did not bring peace to his brothers, did not bring a, a, a gracious heart and understanding and with the, all, the, all the love in the world to bring the peace of God to the hearts of his brothers, where would we be today? Judah is one of his brothers. Without Judah, we don't get David. Without David, we don't get Christ. Without Judah being saved and restored to peaceful relations within his own family, there is no peace for us. It would, come by, it would have to come by different means. So we're picking up in our walk through the life of Joseph this morning, if you haven't figured it out. And we have seen many aspects of God's faithfulness to Joseph and Joseph's faithfulness to God in every circumstance that Joseph walks through. Not one circumstance does, Jake, does Joseph falter. In not one circumstance is Joseph held at fault. In fact, if you read it for what it is, from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, 
you will have a hard time finding a fault in Joseph. And some people would say, well, he was kind of a brat at the beginning. I submit to you that if you will, you will not find that characterization of him in the scriptures. But something you must infer. And so be careful as we read Joseph's life. Because I think what Joseph's life is supposed to show us is that faithfulness brings peace. Faith is essential to peace. And the whole of Joseph's story is about bringing peace to the family of God. So, through Joseph's faithfulness, through his obedience, through his understanding of who is in charge, who is sovereign, who is providential over all things, including his circumstances, we're going to learn about peace. We've also witnessed three other characters walk in anything but peace during his time. And I would, I would, I mean, if you're reading Joseph's story up to this point, how much peace does Joseph have? Not much, right? He's been enslaved, thrown in the pit first, enslaved to, you know, sold into slavery by, to Egypt by his brothers. He's been kicked out of his house that he was, you know, serving faithfully in because he did the right thing. He was sent to prison because it's doing the right thing. And then he's forgotten in prison after doing the right thing. There's not much, like, worldly peace that Joseph is having. But I think it's the peace of God that's ruling in his heart that is keeping him going. It's helping him endure. But these other three characters that we're going to see today are not ever at peace in this story, at least up to this point. For instance... The other three characters, Jacob, his father, Joseph's father, Reuben, his oldest brother, and Judah, one of his other brothers, they're never at peace up until this point in the story. In fact, they will be brought peace only through Joseph's sacrifice and through Joseph's suffering. Last chapter, Genesis 42, we saw how Jacob was stuck in the past and was unable to move forward in his duties to be the patriarch for his family because he's stuck on the fact 20 years earlier that Joseph was taken from him. And that his link to his favorite wife was gone. Because his wife had died in childbirth with his last son, Benjamin. Jacob is not at peace. He's anything but. He's stuck on the fact that his son, his favorite son, was taken. Reuben is not at peace, in fact. He's Joseph's oldest brother by the, by, uh, the first wife of Jacob, Leah. And he shows up only after a five-chapter absence, but with the same result and the same, the same action and the same result. What's it called when you try to do the same thing over and over and over? Insanity. And get the same, yeah, it's called insanity, right? Uh, Reuben is, again, showing us how foolish it is to try to gain the favor of a man by foolish means, right? We can't, he, he, he tries multiple times to gain his father's favor only to be denied over and over and over. And that's mostly his fault. So, and finally, Judah. He shows up and here in this chapter, chapter 43, after scheming to sell Joseph into slavery. Yes, it was his idea. And in chapter 37. And in chapter 38, we get this really unflattering, embarrassing episode with his daughter-in-law turned mother of his child. Right? Judah isn't exactly what we would consider a good man. In fact, he's more of a schemer. 
He's very much like Jacob, his father. The first two of these characters, Jacob and Reuben, have not changed so much as far as the narrative goes. But Judah, Judah has actually made progress, right? Once he's shown what he had done in Genesis 38, he says, she is more righteous than I. In essence, repenting, or at least acknowledging his sin that he has made. But here in chapter 43 and 44, we're going to see such a change in Judah's disposition that it can only be chalked up to spiritual, a spiritual supernatural miracle of sorts. Through Judah, Moses reveals us to the pattern of humility and sacrifice that only one man will perfect. Through Judah, we see his humility of not knowing what to do, but doing what he knows to be faithful can only find itself in an end of itself in the one God-man, Christ Jesus. The one who humbly came to this earth and sacrificed himself for his bride. Judah is a pointer, a shadow of Christ. And he knows, he knows what it takes to act faithfully and what it takes to obtain peace. Surely, peace is an easy concept for us to understand, right? We all know what peace means. It means and it, it means quiet, calm, uh, like there's no fighting. But we usually express like what our understanding of peace is by negative terms, right? Like I said, no fighting. Peace. I'm at peace with somebody. But I think we should understand what the Old Testament is saying when, we, when he talks about peace first, before we even get to our text. It uses this word shalom. Everybody, uh, not everybody, but you probably have heard shalom in some way. Uh, but shalom has a wider meaning than just peace. It's not just translated as peace. And today we're going to see it translated three ways in our text. Um, but I want to show you the whole wide range of what it could mean. Shalom can mean security, welfare, wellness, peace, soundness, like complete, whole, rested, successful. Notice shalom means a whole bunch of stuff. And to really understand what shalom is getting at, in the, we have to look at the context of the passage. So today, our passage is Genesis 43. We're going to cover the whole thing. I'm not going to cover it verse by verse, but we're going to cover it in order. Here is the division of our text for this morning, if you like such things. Verses 1 to 15 show us peace is a blessing. Peace is a blessing. Verses 1 to 15. Verses 16 to 25, peace comes from understanding. Peace comes from understanding. Verses 16 to 25. So we have peace is a blessing. Peace comes from understanding. And finally, 26 to 34 is peace is given and received. So peace is given and received. Peace is a blessing. Peace comes from understanding. And peace is given and received. All for the highlight this one major point. Faith is essential for peace. Faith is essential for peace. If you don't walk away with anything else this morning and you think that I've talked too much, remember that. Faith is essential for peace. And so, faith is essential for peace. Genesis 43 says this. Please remain seated. It's a long passage. I'm going to read it for you. If you follow along, I'm using the version, the ESV version of the Bible. 
And so, if you follow along with me, that is where I'll be reading. It starts like this. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. And Judah, but Judah, said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we have not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother in Benjamin. And as for me, If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into my house, into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. For the man did as Joseph told him, and brought them in to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time, that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And he said, and they said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again and with us, and we have brought our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know how or know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, peace to you. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I have received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. 
for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house, they brought into the house to him the present that they wished they had with them, and bowed down to him and onto the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, It is, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the, he- to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from them, or to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. May God bless the reading of his word. So, in Genesis 43, we have a lot going on, right? We have those three sections. Peace is a blessing, peace comes from understanding, and peace is given and received. I hope that you saw what I was kind of getting at with those headings. But in our first chunk of text, we encounter the first verse, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. Let's not escape nor look over this little tidbit of information. Let's look at this and ask why did the author have this here? And primarily why he has this here, why he puts it here, why Moses tells us the famine was severe in the land. It's because he's trying to impress upon you that since Genesis 41, verse 57, when you hear the first time that the famine was severe, the famine has not subsided. It has not gone away. It has only maintained its severity. And in chapter 45, we learn that there's still five years yet to come of this famine. And here we are told that severity has continued. Jacob recognizes in verse 2 that the family must be fed. So he goes to his sons once again to go down to Egypt and have them buy grain. There's only one problem. He is still unwilling to part with it, that one thing, that he finds as most important to him, Benjamin. He's still unwilling to part with his only remaining son from his favorite wife, the connection to Rachel. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 38, just above, if you were just to look up for up two verses, you would see that it says, he says, my son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. Jacob remains stuck trying to preserve his worldly possession of Benjamin rather than stepping out in faithful obedience. He lives as though he was already dead and still dead 20 years earlier, fixed in time on his favorite wife and his son that are no longer alive. He lives in fear, not by faith. And you might be thinking, well, he did just say, go get some grain. Well, the problem with that is a dead man can still live. See, every unbeliever. Every unbeliever in this world 
lives without spiritual life and they need a savior. Yes, they still eat, they still drink, they still wander about this life trying to be satisfied, but they only fill their bellies for it to be expelled again. Their satisfaction is fleeting. And Jacob's satisfaction was fixed on the worldly needs, not his spiritual needs. But as this happens, Judah comes into our picture, verse 3 to 5, and he emphasizes something very important, and we cannot skip over it. If we do, we will miss one of the more um, great themes of Scripture. He says that all, he says what all we need to know to be true and what was conveniently left unconsidered by Jacob. Judah brings the truth to the picture. If they do not bring Benjamin with them, the Lord of the land will not allow them to buy grain. By not taking Benjamin, they would prove themselves spies. Remember back when he had the, inter, the interaction? He would prove themselves spies. They would prove that they were not honest men and they would prove that they were selfish and self-centered. Now, if you follow with me for a second, I do not believe that Judah was thinking about necessarily those things, right? The accusations that Joseph was making, nor the tests that he was putting them under. I think he's more worried about the grain. However, it still uh, remains true that those things would be true if they did not return with Benjamin. And he explained this in emphatic terms. He recalls the Lord's words, Joseph's Lord's words to them, twice like two pieces of bread for a sandwich. And he starts this way, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. He says it in verse 3 and he says it in verse 5. That's the very beginning and end. And this may not seem like much to us, more than a, much more than a threat of not selling grain to them. However, this phrase carries so much weight with it, we can't ignore it. See, to look on the face of a sovereign, the face of a lord, the face of a king, is a blessing of the highest order. To do so with permission, even higher blessing. Think with me about Esther. One of the things that she risked most in that whole story was walking into the king's presence without permission. Why? Because it is blessing and grace and mercy to be in the faith, be able to see the king face to face, even a pagan king. So much more so for our Lord. To see the Lord, the face of God, is to receive blessing and grace from him alone. In the Torah and in the Psalms, we see that this is true. In the Torah, we see, we read about the Aaronic blessing. And it was said over the priests so that they might convey that to the people. This is what it says, Numbers 6, 23 through 26. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his eyes, upon you and give you peace. To see the Lord's face is to be granted one of the greatest blessings, peace. In essence, we are seeing Judah convey Joseph's orders in such a way that Jacob could understand the severity of his own selfishness, right? He's using this language of uh, blessing, this, this language, you shall not see my face. To see the face of the Lord is to receive blessing, unless you do what it is that I've asked you to do. In in Jacob's case, and in the brother's case, he says, unless you let go of your idol and give him, submit it to the Lord, 
We will not reap any blessing whatsoever from Yahweh or from Joseph. If we do not go to him with the proper sacrifice, we will not even look favor- he will not even look favorably upon us. In fact, if we show up without the required sacrifice, without the one that he's asked, we will surely die. Without food, they will surely die. Jacob's reaction is pretty telling. If you read in verse 6, it says this, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? As if they could anticipate what he was going to do with that. Right? And they even bring it out to him and say, hey, we had no idea this was going to happen. But you notice that Jacob is still stuck holding on to the selfish desire for Benjamin to stay with him. But I want you to notice something about verse 6. Is Jacob referred to Jacob in verse 6? He's referred to as Israel. And you may not see this as something that's really important, but notice when God changes your name, it's for a purpose. When God changes your name, from unbelieving sinner to child of mine, from dead in your trespasses and sins to a son and daughter, your name matters. In this case, Jacob was named Israel when he received the covenant promises. See, verse 6 it starts with his name as Israel, the, his covenant name given to him by Yahweh in Genesis 35. There his name is changed to Israel when he buries his household idols, he puts them away, and he receives the covenant promises of God. He becomes the patriarch of the household of God and the people of God, and at the same time is given the name that would carry through time to name a whole nation of people, Israel. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal about this name change? Why does it matter that it's there? I think that's a legitimate question, and so I'm going to answer it. Well, his name has symbolically been a signal through our entire story of who Jacob is living for. If you notice, he's not referred to Israel any other time except for that covenant-making time when he was given Israel. Not up to this point. See, here's the first time in Joseph's narrative that we see he is named Israel, his covenant name. When he is acting as the proper head of the people of God, when he is taking up the mantle as the leader of the people that he is designed to lead. He, when he is named Israel, he's doing his job as patriarch of the people of God. When he is named Jacob, he is acting as a man and toward the desires of the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that he's, he's also named Jacob a couple more times after this, by the way. So when you read it, it's not like a hard, fast rule. He's acting you know, selfishly or he's acting for the people. But it's a general signal that for uh, public math, seven, eight chapters, he has not been named Israel to this point. But now he takes up, Moses tells us that his name is Israel. Jacob is growing into his covenantal headship like he was supposed to be from the very beginning. Here we see his heart change in small steps as he lets go of his idolatrous grip, grip on Benjamin and trusts God with whatever comes his way. But let's go back to our text really quickly. After his selfish question and accusation against his sons and their explanation, particularly in verses 6 to 8, or 6 to 7, Judah steps in as the leader that he was meant to be. In the beginning of Joseph's story, we had the story of two leaders, right? We had Reuben the whiner, 
and Judah the schemer. Reuben couldn't convince his brothers to leave Joseph alone, nor could he convince his father to let Benjamin go with him and get grain. On the other hand, Judah, from the very beginning, has been an effective leader, right? He convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And now he convinces his father to release his grip on Benjamin so that they may not die. Notice I said a good leader. I didn't say what kind of good leader. Like he can get people to do things. Doesn't mean that he's doing good. But good leadership um, sometimes just looks like convincing others. In Judah's case, it was for good and for evil. And in this case, we see him transfer from evil to good. Judah says this in verse 8, and these are very important. Pay attention. Send the boy with me, that we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Notice what Judah does. Judah puts all of his family's health, all of his family's uh, welfare, all of his family's peace on his back. And he says, give it to me. I will be a pledge. I will be a guarantee for the safety of Benjamin, for Simeon's return, for the whole family's well-being. Judah substitutes himself for the good of his family. And we can learn a lot from this, but I want us to learn one particular thing. So Judah, when he went from the selfish man that gained a buck off selling his brother into slavery, the selfish man that, unbeknownst, unbeknownst to him, used his daughter-in-law as an outlet for his pleasure, he went from that to a man that could give him, would give himself up so that his family and the whole people of God might live. The man no longer lived for himself, but carried his cross and followed after God. Judah's transformation is staggering. And we should look at that and go, praise be to God, because I am that kind of sinner. That gives sinners hope. If you're a Christian here, you've experienced that hope that you can be saved from yourself and the wretchedness of your sin. That you can look outside of yourself and say, if God can save Judah, a terrible man, then God can save me, a terrible man. So take it for what it is, hope. Hope for eternity. But notice it didn't come all at once. It did not come like a hurricane that swept across Florida like Hurricane Andrew did and flattened Homestead. It came in very small increments, right? Through the patience of the Lord using Judah's sinful and selfish nature, nature to show him how truly bereft of goodness he was. Now Judah is able to carry out his godly purpose for his life. Faith precedes peace. Faith is essential for peace. In Judah's acting in faith, we see Jacob relent and bury his idolatrous desire to hold on to the, the faded past. He says in verses 11, 14, to take more provisions and blessings to Egypt to buy more grain and even take Benjamin to demonstrate obedience and faith to the Lord's command. He finally looks upward. Notice this is the first time that he has mentioned God in any positive manner. And he says, 
this particularly. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. He finally looks to the one who can bring peace. He mentions God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God who, is mount, who has mountainous glory, the one who cannot be surpassed for the first time in acts and faith. Jacob hasn't changed completely, however. Notice, he says, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. Do you know what it means to be bereaved? It means to be without. It means like all of his children are gone. Now, if he is bereaved of, of just Benjamin, Joseph, and Simeon, is he bereaved of his children? The answer is no. He has a whole bunch more. But this is part of his heart posture, right? He's feeling like as if he is losing everything when he loses his connection to Rachel through Benjamin and Joseph. So he's not completely changed. But we see that this change comes to a head, not in this chapter, but in 45. So patience, it's a long journey. But in 15, it says this as a transition. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, verse 16, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. Doesn't this sound familiar? A certain parable, maybe? See, they ha he has this um, overwhelming desire to bless his brothers, even though he has been nothing but he's been treated badly. Joseph sees Benjamin and prepares a feast like the father who sees his son coming, coming back, the prodigal son from wandering his own way. And he instructs his servants to carefully care and feast at his return. It's a very similar situation. But Joseph is seeing this for his brother. And his brothers, they don't respond the way that we would kind of think of them to respond. Instead of responding in, oh, wow, a feast? This would be good. They say, woe is me. What have we done? That, that, that money that we took, that money that was given back, it wasn't paid. That money that we took was bad. And he knows it. He knows about it. And he's going to get us. What does he say? He's going to assault us. He's going to take our donkeys. The man who owns all of Egypt is going to take our donkeys. They, so in this fear, they plead with the steward of Joseph's house. And instead of receiving condemnation, what do they receive? The word, the magic words, right? Peace to you. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. See, those who could not even speak a word of peace could not speak shalom to the one who was bringing them into their house at the beginning of this saga. Now are receiving the grace and mercy of peace from the one whom they sinned horribly against. Even more so, he credits God. This pagan credits God, the God of their God and the God of their father for their blessings and even says, hey, I have nothing that I need of you. The treasure has been paid for your wheat. Everything has been given. You don't need to worry about anything. The grace of that man and that pagan is so much more than they could even show one another and toward their brother at the beginning of this story that it doesn't, it, 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 it's got a well some like anxiety within him, right? It's got to bring some, some anxiety with him. But 
They are treated like the shepherds on the hillside when the Lord is announced and the angels of the Lord say, peace on earth and goodwill to men. They're treated like Mary and Joseph as highly exalted as the ones who would be the parents of God, the one of the God-man. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. The words of the are on the lips of a pagan. When Joseph comes back to his home to meet with his brothers, he receives their gifts. He asks them about their welfare and his father's welfare, and upon hearing their response, he is well. Joseph is overwhelmed with the good news, right? He's overwhelmed by two things. The, the fact that Benjamin is there and that his father is alive. And, and I want you to notice what happens. What does Joseph do? He doesn't sit there and say, that's what I thought. He doesn't say, mm-hmm. It's good to know that you guys have some truth in your body. He doesn't stand there in condemnation. He looks for a place to weep. He is so overwhelmed with joy that he cannot keep it inside. That should show us something. Men, you are not robots. Joseph is not a robot. He has real emotions that really need to be controlled for the sake of doing God's work. You too have real emotions that need to be controlled for the sake of God's work. That is why you see him walk away. He doesn't just burst out and crying. That comes in two chapters. He, he doesn't just give himself over to his emotions, but he controls himself and returns. And he says, serve the food. He wants the feast of joy and grace and mercy to be what they remember of this time. Not his crying, not his outburst. And we, here we see in these few verses, the theme of our text come into view. I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 23, it says, peace be with you. And then verse 27, what, is, what does he ask of his brothers? Is it well with you? Is it well with your father? The same word shalom is used in both places. And their response is, he is shalom. He is well. See, God weaves a masterpiece of a narrative to demonstrate the depths and breadths of the peace that he wants for his people then and now. Even with the famine, even with slavery, even with the uh, trials and tribulations that Joseph goes through, God's plan is to make peace with his people. The Lord plans for the shalom of the world actually come from the, the shalom of Joseph's family, the peace of Joseph's family. That one day, Ezekiel describes the everlasting covenant of peace in Ezekiel 37, 26. A peace that which surpasses all understanding to be found in the arms of Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior and our Shepherd. Peace comes through faith because faith is essential to peace. This peace is not readily available, though, to just anyone at any time. And what I mean to that, need to say is that only ones who put their faith in Christ, in the promises of God, for the forgiveness of their sins, will ever experience true peace. Yes, the unbeliever can experience peace of the common grace kind. 
Peace from fighting with their spouse for a time. Peace when their children are asleep and playing quietly. Peace when they don't have a care in the world. But this peace, this peace is fading. Tumult and storms will come. They will continue to come, and instead of having peace in the midst of them, they will fall victim to them. They'll get caught up. That peace that they had will quickly be used up like a tissue, swiftly gone as fast as it came. But for those who believe in the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has brought down peace from heaven, he himself bears the name of Prince of Peace, does he not? They will be satisfied with everlasting peace in Christ's bond of comfort. And remember the headings that I had for this thing that I would not really paid attention to? Peace is a blessing. Peace comes through understanding. And peace is received and given. Given and received. That, those all just kind of give you a guideline. But they all do, are there in the text and it's to support this one essential point. Faith is essential for peace. Peace, shalom, is a blessing not to be presumed upon, but one to be received. By faith, Judah gave himself as a substitute for the shalom of the family, and it underlies his understanding and faithfulness to God. He knew Joseph's requirements and acted in faith to obtain and to receive those blessings that came from faith. He acted by faith to Joseph's command so that he, his family, and the whole of God, the God of the people of God would be able to attain true peace. By faith, Jacob buried his idolatrous need and incessant want to have Benjamin around and submitted to the Lord. He gave up Benjamin in faith. He obtained the blessing of Yahweh for welfare, the shalom of his family. And notice I didn't say it was for himself only, but it was primarily for his family. He was giving himself in service and substitution for his family also. And by faith, Joseph preserves his brothers and in turn the whole line of the Messiah through David and Jesus. His wisdom to act by faith and test his brother's truthfulness, reap the blessing of the Lord and preserve Judah and the rest of the line. The lion of Judah would one day come forth. The lion of Judah would come and make things right first to save us from our sins, and second to save us from ourselves and the world. That day when he will come to judge, they'll get in the dead. See, Joseph's faithfulness was not because of something inside of him that he just kind of picked up his own bootstraps and walked on with. No, it's because God's faithfulness to him through every step of the way. So what shall we see from this text? that we can walk away with. Number one, I think you should see that faith is essential to peace. Without faith in God, and without faith in his promises, without faith in the Lord Almighty, without faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot have peace that lasts beyond the next moment. So we must have first vertical peace. So if you're an unbeliever in the room, if you don't know Jesus this morning, let me tell you this. It is promised that you will not have peace in this life or the next. You will have the exact opposite. But how do you get that peace? How is it possible that that peace might come 
to your life. This peace that Joseph had, that Judah was modeling, that Jacob finally put away his idols, it was because they knew who God was. God, the creator of all things, created everything, and he said it was very good. Very good. And yet, one of his very good creations, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They sinned, they fell, they transgressed, they went against the command of God by eating of the fruit of the tree. In that transgression, in that sin, they found themselves and the rest of the people of the world waiting to be rescued based on a promise that was given to them in Genesis 3.16. A, a serpent crusher. That guy, that man, that God would come in the form of Jesus in the form of a baby, to marry in real time, in real places, so that you and I might be able to look at his perfect sinless life that he lived all the way till he was crucified on the cross for your sins and mine, substituted himself for you. Just like Judas substituted himself for his family, Christ substituted himself and his perfection, his life for yours. And those of you who put your belief and your faith and your trust in his sacrifice will be saved everlasting. And that salvation doesn't come with just like a name, a new name as Christian, daughter, and son. It comes with peace, everlasting peace yeah. that gets you through circumstances that you would never be able to get through on your own. And that that peace is what we now live through and on and by. We look to Christ Jesus as Christians. Those of us who believe in Jesus, what is it that you're supposed to learn from this? Number one, that your life has been paid for. That you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Your treasure has been received. It is no longer yours to pay. Jesus paid it for you. What do we do with that? Number one, we can look at our circumstances in life and say, what does faithful obedience look like in this moment so that I might obtain now, peace now? And what do I mean by that? When we look around our lives and our circumstances and, and we, we go, why is everything not working? Why is God putting me through this? Why are you angering me? Why is this not you know, going the way that I wanted it to? The peace of God that transcends all understanding transcends to even that point and says, I know the plans that I have for you. I am putting you through this for a purpose. I am sovereign. And that God himself is walking you into something particular for your good and his glory. That you can walk into that knowing you have peace with God. That you have peace with God that transcends even to that moment of cancer. Even that moment of divorce, even that moment of fighting, of pain, of suffering, even to the moments of joy and happiness. See, God grants us peace, everlasting peace, so that we might understand what peace is today. To look forward to that everlasting peace that will come when he comes on the clouds. To look forward to that day when Jesus returns as the Davidic King, the conquering Messiah, to kill and destroy death forever. The one who has already granted you peace and substituted himself so that you might find God. Vertical peace is essential 
for horizontal peace. So our peace with God says that I can have peace in this world. That doesn't mean that a hurricane's not going to hit your house. That doesn't mean that you're going to lose a spouse too early, a child too early, or whatever you find dear. But it does say that there's a reason for it. Yeah. And that peace surpasses even that moment. That you can lean on the peace that God has provided for you in Christ so that to get you through those horizontal things that you need peace with. Horizontal peace, though, means that you can have peace with one another. Notice Judah, Jacob, Joseph, Reuben, all these people that we've mentioned, they are not at peace necessarily in a worldly sense, but they're being made at peace with one another through their peace with God. And so what should you do with that? Ask that God may grant you the peace of his salvation, wisdom, mercy, grace through Christ Jesus today so that you might be able to face what comes tomorrow. We, when I grew up, uh, I grew up a lot of times with um, altar calls, and you surely have seen an altar call. And one of the favorite hymns that my, my pastor used to bring up was, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face. Notice the face of blessing. That, those words, those words, just those two lines are our direction today. Turn your eyes upon Jesus because of his glory and his grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus because of what he's done for you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and live at peace with one another because of how he has brought you into peace and peaceful relationship with him. That's what we're supposed to see from Genesis 43, that peace comes through faith, and faith is essential to peace. Let's pray this morning.